Welcome to Technology Transfer IP. Technology transfer is the process by which valuable research, skills, knowledge, and technology developed by educational institutions is transferred to industry for development and to products and services that will benefit society. From basic patent licensing to promoting startups, entrepreneurship, and industry collaborations, while also investing in and managing technology developments. We bring you conversations with the leaders in technology transfer who will share their stories, including their successes, challenges, and expectations for the future. Here's your host, Lisa Mueller. Hello and welcome. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Molly Kachowski, Regional Director, Rocky Mountain Regional, U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. As Director of the Rocky Mountain Regional Office of the USPTO, a position she has held since January of 2016, Molly carries out the strategic direction of the Undersecretary of Commerce for Intellectual Property and the Director of the USPTO and is responsible for leading the regional office. Focusing on the nine states within this region and actively engaging with the community, Molly ensures that the USPTO initiatives and programs are tailored to the region's unique ecosystem of industries and stakeholders. Prior to her time with the USPTO, Molly was a patent attorney in-house in several companies, as well as in private practice. Molly has a Bachelor of Science in Chemical Engineering from the University of New Mexico and a JD degree from the State University of New York at Buffalo Law School. And with that extremely impressive background, welcome to the podcast, Molly. Hi, Lisa. Hey, well, thanks for being here, Molly. I'm really excited to have you here. And thank you so much again for taking part in the podcast. Um, Molly, I generally like to start the podcast off by asking my guests about their career journey. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up in Denver and at the USPTO? So my background is varied. My dad was in the Air Force, so we did tour around a little bit. Um, I was born near Tinker Air Force Base. And then when dad got out of the military, we went um, and worked for Westinghouse, which also sort of treated its people like they were still in the military. So we lived in outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, And then my dad's job moved us to Carlsbad, New Mexico. So the biggest big town when I went to high school was, you know, Denver, Colorado. Um, And then I went to college in Albuquerque, New Mexico. But my mom and dad had both been born and raised in Buffalo, New York. So that's how I ended up back in Buffalo at the State University of New York for my law degree. Um, And then I got married. Um, and my husband's company moved us out to Denver in 2000, and that's where I've stayed ever since. So that's a little bit about the personal journey. The career journey has been, I think, even as interested and varied as the personal journey. I'm kind of from all over, um, and uh, and it, it's reflected in my career. Right, I started out as a, a, an associate. Um, and doing mostly, I'd say 60, maybe 70, 30, um, uh, litigation, um, intellectual property litigation. Oh, so, wow. um, yeah. And that was learning quickly, <laughs> very um, quickly. Cause it was, it was a two person law firm. So I sat second chair in a federal trial, uh, four months after I was admitted to the bar. Oh, talk about trial by fire. You could say that again. Yeah. So, um, so right, but learned so much. And perhaps if I have a philosophy about any career, it's that I like to learn all along the way. 
Um, you know, I, there's some famous saying that says, you know, you, you either learn and grow or you fail, right? Like, and I don't think that I've ever really failed. I've screwed up, (laughs) but I haven't really failed because I've always taken the opportunity to learn from those experiences. So, um, when we moved to Denver, um, I decided I didn't want to live my life in six minute increments anymore. Um, although I applaud those who do. And um, I went in-house and then, you know, each in-house experience was building upon the last um, and really kind of, I think, broadening doors. When I look at, you know, where I started um, as First Data's first patent council ever um, to, you know, where I ended up uh, prior to joining the USPTO, um, it really was just that, okay, here's this next piece of leadership of executive skills, of, you know, technical skills, uh, you know, M&A or, or anything along those lines. So it, it really has just been an amazing kind of puzzle piece of a journey um, to make me who I am today. That's an incredible journey. And, and I'm curious, you went from private law firm practice to in-house. So what made you decide to go to the USPTO? Oh, well, okay. So... Uh, another philosophy is that um, I have a hard time saying no, so I say yes to a lot of things. <laughs> like this podcast. <laughs> uh, like this podcast. Uh, but no, also, I think um, I, I always enjoyed volunteering. Um, there's that new radical song, You Get What You Give. Um, and I truly believe that, right? So um, I do and did and still do a lot of work in the IP community here in Denver. For example, I was a member of the committee that wrote the local patent rules for the District Court of Colorado. I was the I was an officer of our IP section for the Colorado Bar Association. Um, I have been an officer and on the board of directors for the Colorado IP and of court, right? So I was always, and I've always been a part of the Rocky Mountain IP Institute and for the last 12 years, a member of the planning committee, right? So I've kind of always been that, girl about town uh, in in Denver. And um, there was a group of us that got together. Um, you know, John Posthumus, Tom Franklin, and Michael Dropkin really took the lead on this. But they knew that the, you know, the AIA was going to pass. The AIA, we also knew, was going to have a rider about regional offices. And they organized a group of people to say, hey, we really want to bring a, a regional office to Denver. And so I was part of that group. I believed in the vision that they had. I believed in the vision that the USPTO had for that office. And uh, and when Russ Slifer moved up to be the deputy director of the agency, it was like, well, if you know, I really believe in this vision, maybe I should apply. Um, so I did, and here I am. Yeah, here you are. And and in fact, um, talking about your position there at the USPTO. Uh, I think a lot of us really don't know a whole lot about the Rocky Mountain Regional Office. So if you could tell us a little bit more about it and perhaps the number of examiners you have there, that would be awesome. Um, Yeah. So, well, obviously, we don't have anybody really in the office right now. We're all still kind of on the march to return to the office. Um, But when we do, we'll probably have in between 50 and 60 people that will be coming into the office um, on a semi-regular basis. Um, so we will be working with our patents operation to increase the number of examiners in Denver. But, you know, when we started this office in 2014, there were about 29 examiners, and I think we're well over 300 
that are here in Colorado. That's a pretty significant number. Yes. Um, and, and all of them are associated with the office, either through some of our work-life stuff or through, you know, other associations. So we do get to see a lot of them on a regular basis. But I do not supervise any of the judges. Um, and we actually have Deputy Chief Thurman, who relocated to Colorado from the Trademark Trial and Appeal Board in our office. Um, and I don't supervise any of the Patent Trial and Appeal Board judges, although I am very grateful to my female colleagues on the Patent Trial and Appeal Board because they let me go to lunch with them. Um, <laughs> um, no, it's, it's we don't I don't supervise any of those people. Um, my staff is really the the outreach and education staff. Um, that's responsible for the region. So the Rocky Mountain region is nine states. We have everything from North Dakota down to Kansas, over to Utah, up to Idaho and everything in between. Um, and I'm sure that, you know, people are sick of me saying this, but I truly believe it. We have the best people. We have the best scenery. And I think we have the best food out of all of the regions. I know people will argue with me over that one, but um, it's a fantastic region. Um, I think that Rocky Mountain spirit of, hey, you know, we see a problem, we solve it, and we go about our business and and do those things is is really quite fantastic from an innovation perspective because it really is, hey, we can do this better and let's innovate to make and do this better. So I, I love this region. I love the office. 50% of my job is making sure that the examiners and the judges that um, are associated with our office have a great place to work. Um, and then the other supposedly 50% of my job is education and outreach about the IP system, about um, all forms of intellectual property, and um, also about the agency and its initiatives. So I wanted to switch gears a little bit and ask you about some of that outreach and some of the USPTO's initiatives, particularly those relating to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I wanted to focus on the USPTO's efforts to increase the number of women and other underrepresented inventors and patent agents and attorneys. So I thought I would start, Molly, by um, asking you about the USPTO's Office of Innovation Outreach, which is also known as the OIO, which that's a song, too, I believe, which <laughs> you must get some interesting comments on that. So I know the OIO is located in the office of chief communications officer and is responsible for developing awareness and outreach programs and training for inventors, organizations and universities. It also does other things like providing intellectual property, innovation and invention resources to independent inventors, small businesses, entrepreneurs and other underrepresented or underserved populations. So I'm curious, Molly, could you tell us a little bit about how your office implements some of this programming and some of the other initiatives of the OIO? Oh, well, it's a it's definitely a symbiotic and collaborative relationship. So, you know, typically our Office of Innovation Outreach and our Office of Education Outreach, which covers kind of the same spectrum, but from the kindergarten through 12 perspective, as well as teachers, um, uh, they really, we work together with them all the time. Either we're helping support the programs that they're putting on, we're advertising the programs that they're putting on. And in the form of that advertisement, please do attend our Asian American, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander Innovation and Entrepreneurship Program coming up on May 17th and 18th. Um, and it, like we really do work together to make sure that the programs on behalf of the agency 
um, are are really a success and that they get the message out there about the work that intellectual property can do and the lift that intellectual property can do, not just for the individual inventors and the patentees, right, but also for communities and companies and all of those other things. You know, we've, we've always known, um, and I think our office of the chief economist have has been doing an amazing job um, in kind of exploring that symbiotic relationship between the economy and intellectual property ownership. Our IP in the U.S. economy reports, um, you know, really kind of show the effect that IP intensive industries has on the U.S. account on the U.S. economy. So um, in 2019, IP intensive industries accounted for 41% of the domestic economic activity and about 62.5 million U.S. jobs directly or indirectly. That's an amazing statistic. Um, And and when you talk about jobs, right, um, you automatically start talking about communities. And, you know, we know that IP intensive industries pay more money. Um, You know, so when you're looking at how do you lift a community that's been underserved or underrepresented in the past, um, you know, taking advantage of intellectual property ownership, starting up those companies, giving back to the communities through those companies and the job growth. It's really, to me, um, when we talk to individual inventors, I'm never just thinking about that particular inventor. I'm thinking about what that inventor can do with their intellectual property to lift not just themselves, but all the people that are around them. And so I think that's one of the things that that really is the mission and focus of the agency is to make sure that when people are making those intellectual property decisions that are so important for their businesses and communities, that they're making informed decisions. And so that is something that the Office of Innovation Outreach, the Office of Education Outreach, all of the regional offices, and pretty much anybody who speaks on behalf of the agency um, is, is taking advantage of and making sure that we know that that's, you know, that they're making the right decisions for their for their intellectual property ownership, their businesses and their communities. So I wanted to ask you next, Molly, about the Council of Inclusive Innovation, uh, in particular for some of our listeners who may not be familiar with the Council of Inclusive Innovation. Can you tell us a little bit more about it as well as its mission? So, um, you know, I, I think the USPTO recognizes that we're at an, an inflection point um, and, and perhaps a tipping point. Um, we are not taking advantage as a society or as a nation of all of the talent, of all of the brains that could be contributing to innovation. Um, studies like the Lost Einstein study, um, uh, as well as others, have shown that you know, we've really gotten away from kind of the the core principle of why the patent clause and the copyright clause is in the United States Constitution. Our founding fathers truly believed that America was going to succeed because of American ingenuity. Um, and right now we're excluding, whether by choice or, you know, just by institution, there are large segments of our society 
um, that are excluded from participating in the intellectual property system. And we're at that inflection point, I think, right now. We recognize the problem, and now we just have to make sure that we're encouraging um, uh, minorities, women, underrepresented, under-resourced communities, and making sure that they have access to the intellectual property system. So CI Squared is an initiative that's chaired by Secretary Raimondo. It's to, uh, we instituted this um, initiative to develop a comprehensive national strategy to increase participation in our innovation ecosystem. And there's really three things that we want to do with this. We want to encourage, empower, and support innovators, um, both future and current innovators. We know, right, that women go into, and I'm going to use women as the example, but pretty much every other minority follows um, where women are right now. We know that women are going into the the STEM um, uh, jobs and, and degrees in, in a much higher ratio than they are actually patenting. So what's going on there? Because, right, you would think a lot of our inventors are scientists and engineers um, and, you know, they, they work for corporations. So what is keeping women who are already working for those corporations in those engineering and science jobs from becoming patentees? And so I think that's one of the efforts of the, the council. They're also looking at, you know, K through 12 education. What can we be doing there? Um, and in order to kind of tackle this national strategy, we did get intellectual property leaders from a broad spectrum of the innovation ecosystem, including the federal government. So SBA and National Science Foundation are members, industry, Procter & Gamble, AT&T, IBM, and Oracle, IP organizations such as AIPLA and the United Inventors Association, as well as Autumn academia, venture capitalists, independent inventors, and small businesses all make up part of the council. And um, if you want more information about that council and kind of some of the things that they are doing or some of the initiatives that they will be undertaking when they release the strategy, you can find that under our Expanding Innovation tab at USPTO.gov. Yeah, and there is quite a bit of information already there. So I'd encourage anybody to, to look at that, that portion of the USPTO website. Absolutely. And then there are, I think, a couple of other things, um, you know, that the, uh, the regional offices are doing that are ancillary to CI Squared. Um, there are a couple of other things that, you know, we're looking at doing um, to make sure that we um, understand kind of all of the different pain points. And, you know, three of our regional directors uh, came from in-house counsel. My colleague, Damien, was a uh, longtime Ford employee. Uh, my colleague Hope was at BlackBerry and Xerox, right? So we understand the corporate world pretty well. And one of the things that we really felt needed to be discussed was how corporations can increase the diversity at what we call the invention harvesting stage. And that stage is, right, you know, when those invention disclosures come in, however the corporation does it, whether it's a push or a pull invention disclosure, we really wanted to understand what was going on at that level. And so we did a series of roundtables that involved 80 different companies from around the nation, um, and we talked about it. Um, and and our some friends of ours at Santa Clara University um, uh, wrote a paper it's called the Invention Harvesting Best Practices 
Um, I'm happy to provide anybody with a copy of it. Um, but it really is a fantastic set of best practice sessions, um, you know, that are in easy to read tables. Some and and we cataloged it as do it now, do it this year, do it in five years. Um, and and it really is all of the things that you know go into making sure that a company's engineering uh, prowess is is aware of intellectual property and knows how to take advantage of the intellectual property offerings at each corporation. So it's a really great study, and I think it was the first of its kind to actually focus on this area. Um, and then our colleagues at Santa Clara's High Tech Law Institute also did a survey. So it's not just the roundtables and the things that we gleaned from the roundtables, but it was also, you know, those, um, the the responses to the survey. And the survey is ongoing. So if anybody wants to, to go ahead and, and contribute their ideas to that, we welcome it. Um, we'd love to do another publication, um, you know, down the road that just says, hey, you know, this is this is some of the other great ideas that we've been able to um, put forth. So switching gears a little bit, Molly, I wanted to ask you about a recent announcement from the USPTO on something called the Joint Project Agreement with the National Academy of Inventors, uh, which is to broaden diversity, equity and inclusion, as well as access in the invention and innovation ecosystems. I was wondering, since this is so new, if you might have some additional details that you could tell us about it. Uh, you know, it is it's new to all of us. So um, but I'm I'm thrilled about this JPA. And a JPA is really, you know, just an agreement between the United States Patent and Trademark Office and an organization to kind of outline what we want to do together. Um, and I think this fits very, very well with our mission of expanding innovation. So we we are going to be working with the National Academy of Inventors to figure out how to get access to USPTO resources to underserved communities, including minorities, women, veterans, and individuals with disabilities. I think the broad outline is just that, you know, kind of the USPTO will contribute the expertise and perhaps um, the National Academy of Inventors will kind of find targets for us. Uh, and maybe target isn't the right word, but, you know, they will find the communities for us and maybe help us get an introduction into those communities um, so that we can, you know, start to bring some of those USPTO resources into those communities. Um, it's it's really important. And this is one of the other reasons why, and, and I think you and I have have met as a part of this. Yes. Not that I'm changing subjects on us yet. Um, but right, I think, you know, the USPTO recognizes that, you know, the issue of attracting underserved communities to the United States Patent and Trademark Office and to the IP system is a multifaceted, multi-layered problem. Definitely. Right? Definitely. Um, and and part of it is uh let's let's look at who's who they have to speak to, right? Uh, you know, is somebody that looks like them coming into their communities to talk to them? Exactly. That's that's the issue. It is the issue. And, and it's a huge issue. Huge. Um, I know you have had the experience and I have had the experience multiple times over my career where I walk in to a room and I realize I'm going to have the bathroom all to myself. Exactly. Um, so, 
so right. And, and, and it only gets more, and I'm going to use the word very deliberately lonely for someone who may be, um, you know, a, a diverse candidate in, in a multitude of ways. So I think, right. Uh, what we're doing with NIA, what we're doing with the CI squared, what we're doing with, you know, um, the the focus of the regional offices, it's it's all part of peeling back that onion that makes up this problem, um, and we are doing other things in um, with the USPTO to make the intellectual property system as a career more attractive to minorities, women, veterans, individuals with disabilities. Yeah, and I think that's actually a great segue to my next question, because one of the things I saw is that the PTAB has a diversity, equity and inclusion committee that was recently formed. So um, and I'm not sure if any of the other groups within the PTO have such a committee. So I was kind of curious if you could tell us a little bit about uh, this committee and any initiatives uh, you might know that it's undertaking. So I I know a little bit about this committee. Um, You know, the USPTO has always had um, an, an amazing diversity champion in our um, EEOC chair, uh, Bismarck Myrick. Um, and we've had an amazing set of affinity programs um, and affinity groups that encompass literally every facet of, um, you know, a, a person's identity. And, and I guarantee you, we, we have a group for you at the USPTO. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, yep. Uh, so I, I think, you know, we've we've always done that. Um, but I know that, you know, Chief Judge Bullock um, and and Vice Chief um, or Deputy Chief Bonilla, they're both very concerned about kind of, you know, what they see in front of them um, in terms of representation in front of the Patent Trial and Appeal Board. So I think they formed the Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Committee in order to, you know, kind of... Uh, springboard a few more um, initiatives that are like the LEAP initiative um, that is currently ongoing. Um, You know, the LEAP initiative gives um, participants um, in front of a patent trial and appeal board hearing, and I mean any participants, so whether it's an ex parte hearing or whether it's an AIA hearing, it gives people um, an extra 15 minutes if they have a younger attorney. Um, and by younger, I don't mean by age. I mean by experience. You know, um, it, it is someone who, you know, has not had a lot of experience um, conducting oral arguments and who is also a diverse candidate. Um, we we want to see them. And so we'll give extra time in order for the parties to put some of those people forward and allow them to build their resumes um, and have the experience. I've used that program, actually, with a patent agent in my firm who she's uh, less than five years out. Uh, having gotten her patent agent's degree. And I have to say, I was really impressed by the judges. Um, it was an, it was an appeal. Um, and they were really great with her. And I would highly encourage people to use that program. I was very impressed. And, and I'm, she was glad and I was glad that we both did it. So I can't say enough really good things about it. I'm so thrilled about that. So my ask would be if there are any corporate, uh, you know, an in-house counsel, um, that are listening to this podcast, please, please, please take advantage of this and allow your outside counsel to take advantage of this. I think it's an amazing opportunity for the young lawyers or for the young patent agents. I think it is, um, it, it's just great all around 
Um, and, uh, you know, I know our judges love it. I, I hear from them all the time about how much they enjoy the leap arguments. So please do. And, and I think if you have any ideas for um, the Patent Trial and Appeal Board to, you know, help them springboard some other ideas about diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, please do reach out to us and, and let us know about that. Um, we're, we know we don't have the the corral on good ideas. And so we always love to hear what other people think we should be doing. Um, I think the patent or the patent trial and appeal board pro bono program is also one of the initiatives that will be coming under the diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we are running that with patent trial and appeal board bar association. So Molly, I also wanted to ask you about uh, another item that just recently was announced, and that was the U.S. Department of Commerce just released its equity action plan. And so action number five specifically involves the USPTO and says that the office is going to increase access to the patent and trademark system for inventors and entrepreneurs from historically underserved communities. Can you tell us a little bit about how the office plans to implement this action plan? So we already have a great start, right? Um, our pro bono program is in all 50 states and um, I believe Puerto Rico and one of the other territories. Um, and it really is a, a fantastic um, program that has been around. I'm going to date myself. So I think Minnesota had the first pro bono program in the nation and they beat Denver and Colorado by four months. Wow. So we've had a pro bono program called ProboPat here in Colorado since 2012. Um, and it has, it's, it's done amazingly. It's run through Mikasa Resource Services and it covers Colorado, Utah, um, Wyoming, Montana, and New Mexico. And they really do a fantastic job of matching attorneys with under, um, under-resourced individuals. So, right, to be, to be qualified for the pro bono program, you have to ha- make less than 300 percent of the the poverty line, which is, I think, somewhere around $42,000. So that, you know, I mean, it's, it's a relatively broad range, but the number one thing that I hear from every single small business, individual inventor, entrepreneur, and even some of the large corporations um, is that filing a patent costs too much money. Yeah, I get that from individual inventors who call looking to have a patent application filed and talk about sticker shock. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and so I think, you know, if if the goal is to get back to, you know, making sure that every American has the ability to apply their ingenuity, you know, perhaps build a business around it or at least license that ingenuity out to someone who will build a business it, you know, it starts with access. Um, you know, it's it's one thing for my colleagues and I to go out and to make sure that everybody has all of the information to make informed IP business decisions. But if they don't have the money to do it, it doesn't matter what you know. So I think the pro bono system, our law school clinic system, um, you know, our pro bo- our pro se art unit that's in our patent operations uh, group, it's it's again that multifaceted, multi-layered effort to make sure that under-resourced individuals have access to the IP system because we know that they don't right now, right? When when we look at where inventors are, we know that they are primarily bi-coastal. 
Um, we know that they are white and we know that they are male and we know that they come generally from the upper middle class or the wealthy class of, of individuals. Okay, that, that's, and, and by all means, we want to encourage them to continue innovating. We want to encourage their ingenuity as well. But there's whole swaths of people that we are leaving um, and, and that don't have access to that. And we want to change that. Um, and so the USPTO between the regional offices, it is um, the regional offices, our um, you know colleagues at headquarters in the Office of Innovation Outreach, in the Office of Education Outreach, in patent ops with the pro bono program, with the law school clinic program, with our pro state programs. We're just trying to attack it at every single level and, and lift where we can and encourage where we can and inform where we can. So speaking of another swath of people who have tended to be left out of kind of the IP patenting process, I wanted to ask you about women and other underrepresented patent agents and patent attorneys. And you mentioned about the two of us meeting before and full disclosure, you and I met as part of the Heritage and Heritage Think Tank uh, that's working on trying to increase the number of women in particular in patent law. So I'm curious, besides your involvement in Heritage and Heritage, um, what you and the uh, office is doing in terms of initiatives to help increase women and other underrepresented agents and patent attorneys? Again, multifaceted, multilayered. Exactly. Multiple onions in this mix here. Multiple onions in this mix, but but not the least of which is the recognition, um, you know, that you can't be it if you can't see it. So um, I remember when I was, and especially, I, I had reached a point when I was in-house counsel, and this was right before the American Events Act came about, and I had reached a point where I was, and I'm going to freely admit it, I was bored. Um, I felt like I'd ridden in every rodeo that IP had to offer me. <laughs> and I was just like, I need something a little more exciting. I need something else to do. Um, and, and I looked around and I realized that in Colorado, I could count on one hand the number of women, and I knew them all, who were at my age level and experience level and who were still doing what I will call the, you know, the hardcore patent work, um, you know, that were heavily involved in patent prosecution and, and licensing and, and those kinds of things. Um, and, and I looked back to see where any number of the women that I had started with ended up. And, and a lot of them were, you know, either doing softer IP in the trademark world, or, um, you know, they were doing nothing related to the legal field anymore, that they had taken a break for life experiences. Yeah, that's been my experience too. I've been practicing almost 30 years and I've had a almost virtually identical experience as well. Yeah. So that I think, that was an eye opener for me. And so I asked my mentor, because I've always had mentors, I've always believed in mentoring others. I, I don't believe that you should go forward without reaching back to bring somebody else with you. And um, I asked my mentor at the time, I said, why? Like, what, what happened? We were all so feisty. <laughs> and and what, what happened? And she just looked at me and she said, life happened, right? You know, 
And she goes, but let me ask you a question. She goes, when you were coming up, who were some of the people that you looked up to? And I told her and she said, okay, um, you know, what, what did you see them do? And, and I said, well, I saw them making compromises, right? You know, either, you know, they, at at times they went part-time at times, you know, they, they didn't do anything with the legal profession at times, you know, um, they, they didn't have relationships. Um, and so, and she said, and you know, what does that tell you? And I said, well, it kind of tells me that some of them made a choice, you know, about what they wanted to pursue. And she said, "Mm -hmm." but perhaps you didn't see anyone who had the whole package and maybe you should be that person. And so I resolved at that point, right? Like I was, she's like, you just need to be visible and you need to show people that it can be done. It may not look pretty. And I will absolutely tell people, right? It's messy. I don't believe in things like work-life balance. I, I do like one of the phrases that one of the other women came up with in our workshop, which was, I think, work-life integration. Um, I just call it, you juggle the balls that you need to juggle when you juggle them. <laughs> As best you can juggle them, yes. As best you can, right, exactly. So I, I think that was part of it. So, you know, I resolved then I was going to be visible. Um, and no matter what it looked like, no matter how messy it got, um, because I really, I have loved being a patent attorney my whole life. It has intellectually challenged me. It has given me more than I have ever put into this system. Um, I have absolutely loved being um, at that intersection of technology and law my entire career. And I want other people to experience that. So I resolved then I was going to be visible. Um, And I think I've done visibility. Messy, but visibility. (laughs) And that was, you know, also part of coming to the USPTO was getting that platform that the USPTO was able to give me in terms of being visible. So I think, you know, encouraging women, mentoring women, um, those are all of the things. The office is also looking at what we can do to encourage. I mean, I'm sure you know, right, that we implemented rules in September 2020 that increased the bachelor degrees that are accepted under category A um, for sitting for the, the patent bar exam. Um, you know, many of us know uh, women who maybe got you know, an undergraduate that was in, um, you know, a softer study and then got a master's or a PhD in an engineering and still had to qualify under category B um, in order to sit for the exam, um, which, right, category B means you have to prove more things about your education. Well, you know, when you have to prove more things, that's a little off-putting to people. And so we're looking at, at all of those things Um, And I think top to bottom. And again, if anyone has any ideas for something that the USPTO has missed, please reach out to us and let us know. Um, You know, one of the things that I talked to Will Covey about ages ago, not ages ago, but um, I think in addition to what we did in September 2020, I said to Will, I'm like, hey, you know, why do we charge people $100 to change their name on their registration certificate? Thank you for doing that. Yes. Who do you think that affects? <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's affecting men. 
Exactly. And I I just want to add to your point about being visible and and mentoring. You know, you started, you talked about being at a small firm. I also started at a small firm and have been traditionally with a couple of exceptions during my career in small firms. And I would encourage women and and, and others um, who are listening to this podcast to be visible. Um, there are still a lot of firms, whether small, medium in size, that don't have mentor programs, don't have mentors, as well as women who are attorneys, patent attorneys and startups, and they're very, very small. So there is tremendous need for people, uh, women who are practicing, who have a number of years under their belts to be visible and to reach out and, and help these women, uh, much like you've done. And if you don't know of any of the, like, if you want to be part of a formal mentoring program, absolutely reach out to me. I will help find you a mentoring program, um, whether you need to be mentored or whether you want to mentor. Um, and and I, I encourage people who have been out a number of years who think, oh, I'm not sure I know the answers. You have more of the answers than you think you do. Absolutely. Oh. Absolutely. And you can definitely mentor someone. You definitely... Uh, have advice and experience and life lessons to share that will definitely help someone. Absolutely. And, and so I, I think, um, you know, that's, that's all part of it. We're, we're looking at other things about, you know, what degrees qualify for the exam. I think um, I will say that, you know, what we did in September, 2020 was probably the easiest and the low hanging fruit that we could get to, but we're looking at the, the more difficult parts of it. Um, again, you know, looking at the entirety of the system, um, I, I believe in, you know, we treat practitioners uh, as practitioners, whether they're agents or attorneys. Um, that is not the case in every state. Um, so we are working with the National Association of Patent Practitioners on a couple of different projects to kind of harmonize ethical rules uh, about what being a practitioner means in different states. So I think that's something else that's going on. There's a number of different things that we're working on. Um, and again, multifaceted, multilayered. It is the topic of conversation that, at the agency. Um, but we recognize because, again, going back to the people that we want to reach in underserved communities, you have to have people that look like them. Because when when there is, there's that innate trust that that happens between people um, and then the one other thing that I will say to encourage women to the profession, um, I, my best friends are in the profession. They are all smart, fierce, wonderful, witty, kind, generous, like amazing women where sometimes like I have to pinch myself that, <laughs> that these women, like that I know these women and that they they like me. I think. <laughs> so, right. Like you, you just have those pinch me moments when you realize like, yes, I know what you mean. I, these are, this is the best group of women I could have ever asked for over the course of my life. And how weird is it that we all gravitated to this profession and that's how we met. Yeah. It's very unusual. Yes, it is. And, and so I think, um, I always tell people, like, find your tribe. Um, I have definitely found mine um, and then rely on them over the years. I would not be where I am without my tribe, um, including men and women, you know, especially the men who believed in me early in my career um, and all along the way. I would not be where I am. And so um, it, it, the IP community is just a wonderful, wonderful community. It and really I, is. 
particularly like the Denver one, but we're just... <laughs> you're just not a little biased at all on that one. <laughs> not at all. Not at Lisa, all. Come on. <laughs> nah, nah. So, well, Molly, I generally like to close the podcast by asking my guests if they could have any three wishes granted or a vision realized for their office, what would that be? So I normally hesitate when I talk about wishes, um, but I do have one. Um, I don't know if I could come up with three that would be appropriate for the podcast, but I'll give you one. And it has to do with the women inventor rate. So um, when we did our progress and potential reports, we kind of cataloged all of the states uh, as as far as their you know women inventor rate. And Wyoming came out on top for the the best of all of the 50 states um, in an annual uh, women inventor rate. And I would love to see my region do that in every single one of its states. I shouldn't be surprised by Wyoming. Um, You know, they were, right, the first state to allow women to vote. They had the first female governor, the first female jurist. Um, and, uh, and so, uh, and I think the first woman elected to office as well. I believe that's Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. So they are the equality state and I shouldn't be surprised, but I also really feel like they punch above their weight class because, right. There really are, I think more sheep than people in Wyoming. Yeah. I think that's right too. So I really feel like, you know, if Wyoming can do that, I just want to issue the challenge to my other states, really, and to to every state, you know, be like Wyoming and, and really harness the ingenuity of all of your citizens. I think Wyoming would like you to put that on a bumper sticker. Be like Wyoming. <laughs> No, that's I have to talk wish. to someone about that. Yeah, you have to talk to someone. But that is quite seriously, that that's a great wish. And let's hope we can get the other 49 states uh, and Puerto Rico to be there as well. So, well, Molly, I can't thank you enough for all your insights and time today. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. If any of our listeners want to reach out and ask you any questions, where can they reach you? They can reach me at my email address at uspto.gov. So mollybeth.kachowski at uspto.gov. They can reach me at Rocky Mountain at uspto.gov. They can reach me on LinkedIn. Um, Don't hesitate to reach out. Um, I am an inveterate coffee drinker. I love to talk to people. I love listening to people's journeys and finding things that we have in common. So don't hesitate to reach out and contact me in any way. Well, thank you so much again, Molly. It's been really great to have this opportunity to talk to you. Thank you for listening to Technology Transfer IP. Please visit us online for more resources at techtransferipforum.com. New to Tech Transfer or a seasoned pro? Autumn is the global member organization for Tech Transfer and is here to help you get connected, get smart, and get ahead. Whether you work in academia, research, government, business development, corporate engagement, or startups, Autumn is dedicated to supporting you through education, advocacy, networking, and promotion. Join and you'll receive 20 free live webinars, as well as meaningful discounts on meetings and courses insider access to a vast network of colleagues to help you through challenges, and a line on new technologies and the university decision makers who license them. Membership is open for 2023. Join us.